0: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real
1: patients.
2: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
1: Learn more at meta.com/slash/metaverseimpact. This call is being recorded. To accept the call, press three. John Gate. If I found a body in your trunk, do I assume that you kidnapped him, tortured him, raped him, and threw him in the trunk?
0: Welcome to Killer's Vault. I'm Elizabeth Rome. Join Eric Roberts and me as we take you inside the brutal minds of the most prolific serial killers the world has ever known. Through never before seen or heard letters and phone calls between Rob Webb and Richie and Barbara Dickstein, these personal accounts of murder and mayhem will be unleashed for the first time as we open the Killer's Vault. Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker, the Toolbox Killers, Their heinous and bloody killing spree began on June 24th, 1979 and ended on October 31st of that same year. Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker, known as the Toolbox Killers, kidnapped, raped, tortured and murdered five teenage girls in the Lower Bay Area of Los Angeles, California. Subsequent to his capture, Roy Norris only admitted to taking part in one of the five murders, which he says was committed under the duress of his evil and dominant partner, Lawrence Bittaker Of the other four murders, Norris admits to only taking part in the abductions, rapes, and torture, claiming that Bittaker murdered all of them because of his insatiable bloodlust. However, behind his testimony, Norris cleverly avoided the death penalty by testifying against Lawrence Bittaker who was sentenced to death once all of the evidence was presented. And it was that barbaric evidence that proved Norris was a willing and extremely compliant accomplice in all of the murders, which we will present in this podcast. According to Norris, as the innocent man, he is and has been the victim of terrible circumstances which were predicated upon his fear of Lawrence Bitteker. However, during Norris's conversations with four jailhouse acquaintances, all inmates with no knowledge of one another, he reveled while giving each of them a detailed account of the murders and a gory blow-by-blow accounting of how each girl was raped and tortured. Norris was far from being an innocent man under duress. Bitteker, in a separate wing of the jail, gave identical accounting of the rapes, tortures, and murders to anyone who would listen. All of the jailhouse witnesses testified during the trial to recount all of those detailed admissions which we've included in this podcast. In his opening letter, Norris's egocentric and grandiose opinion of himself as a parent, his personal relationship with society as a whole, and the martyrdom he displays behind the pain and suffering he must endure for the rest of his life is all a textbook example of a sociopathic psychopath.
3: Dear Richie, are you corresponding with my partner in crime, Larry Bittaker? People who have written to him for some time usually contact me when they've gotten tired of his complete denial of involvement. I don't write very specifically about the crimes themselves. It's too humiliating and depressing for me. I suffer with nightmares that I've come to accept are part of my karmic punishment, but I do rarely write about specifics. On the other hand, I write somewhat politically about my past. I feel an obligation to society to answer any questions they may have, if I can, about how I came to be involved in the heinous murders.
0: Dr. Catherine Ramsland is a world-renowned expert on serial killers a professor of forensic psychology and criminal justice. She has five graduate degrees, three of which are forensic psychology, clinical psychology, and criminal justice. She's the author of How to Catch a Killer, Confession of a Serial Killer, and 66 other books, in addition to hundreds of articles and short stories. It's wonderful to have you on the show, Dr. Ramsland. What are your thoughts about murderabilia and these letter-writing fetishists who have these relationships with serial killers or, and murderers? I mean, as a forensic psychologist, do you find it fascinating to be able to have these letters, to access these letters and to analyze them?
1: It has been valuable for psychology and criminology and law enforcement to study these letters, to learn some of the things, because sometimes... These killers will say things to their correspondents that they have not said in any other context, and that actually supplies some leads, some clues about where to find unfound victims or how to close some cases. That has happened as well. The idea of having the raw material that helps to build our criminological theories, I mean, we need that.
0: Serial killers Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris were given the moniker the toolbox killers. After the press had discovered that they had tortured and murdered all of their victims using items commonly found in a toolbox. In fact, after his arrest, Bittaker proudly tagged himself with a jailhouse nickname, pliers, because he so often used vice-grip pliers to torture his victims. Bittaker, a manipulative and sadistic psychopath, and Norris, a maladjusted and socially awkward sexual deviant, began their vile campaign of rape, torture, and murder on June 24, 1979. And on October 31st of that same year, their terrifying and bloody atrocities came to an end. The cruel misogynistic loners raped, sodomized, mentally and physically tortured, and finally murdered the five teenage girls for the sheer pleasure of hearing them scream. They luxuriated in the blood-curdling screams that they extracted behind the agonizing and unendurable pain they caused to relive the unimaginable horrors they visited upon their victims. Bittaker and Norris employed a tape recorder to capture those agonizing screams which they would later listen to over and over again. But that wasn't enough to further dehumanize and objectify these young, innocent girls forever and to further enhance their own entertainment the cruel and evil toolbox killers took dozens of photographs of their victims while they were being raped sodomized and tortured rapist and sexual deviant roy norris proved to be completely devoid of guilt or remorse for his crimes and of larry bideker fbi profiler john douglas described him as the most disturbing individual for whom he has ever created a profile Norris and Bittaker were a serial killer team. Is that common, that teams become powerful and become serial killers together?
1: Well, Norris and Bittaker were unusual as a team. O- often when we see team killers, which is about maybe 20% of the time, it's a it's a husband-wife team or a, a dominant submissive team. Um, with Norris and Bittaker, they met in prison, and they shared almost equally these kinds of fantasies about dominating women and when they and they were getting out around the same time so so that's kind of an unusual team in terms of deciding to put into place the kinds of things that they they wanted to do
3: their evil and dark alliance was first consummated in 1977 while both predicate felons were serving out time in California's San Luis Obispo men's colony. Upon their first meeting, career criminal Lawrence Bittaker and lifelong sadist rapist Roy Norris quickly realized they had so much in common. Both men were misogynists, equally showing a mutual disgust and hatred for women, especially young teenage girls, they also found a shared propensity to sexual violence and torture. They'd sit in their cells for hours, treading pornography while sharing war stories of their criminal past. Soon they became inseparable, bonding through shared fantasies of rape and torture, which would set both men off into sexual frenzies. They fed off one another's perversions, each time trying to heighten their brutality, trying desperately to out-corrupt one another, which was an impossible feat considering the depth of each man's insanity. For Norris, it was all about the terror and fear he induced in young women, seeing their petrified faces, hearing them scream just before he brutally raped them. That was the thing that really got Roy Norris off.
0: Rob Webb is a known expert on true crime, with an emphasis on serial killers. Rob began corresponding with serial killers in 1990 after first communicating with John Wayne Gacy. Since then, he has amassed thousands of letters and artwork from well over 300 serial killers from all over the world. Rob has appeared on numerous documentaries and in periodicals discussing his work, his collection, and his long and trusting friendships with some of the most heinous serial killers of the 20th century. Rob Webb is also a contributor to Killer's Vault, and we're thrilled to have him. Did you ever experience going to the dark side in their presence,
4: Gacy and Norris in particular, since you were so close to them? Did you see them flip that switch? Most certainly with, with John during the visitation, when, when he talked about the last victim and he was angry, he got angry about his pleasure being cut short because he had to take the phone call. He came back and, and the last victim had perished. He was angry because he couldn't commit more heinous acts. And, and I thought that was ludicrous. I even told him so. I said, that's, that's, that's like silly, John. I said, that's just, you just would have hurt him more. Did you see Norris flip a switch and go to the dark side in front of you? When he looked at girls, when they walked by, with the way he looked at them, it was, you could just see the wheels and gears turning, and it was like his mind was taking a photograph. Click, 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 click. All this has to be remembered because I know I'm gonna masturbate over her later and she's frail and she's petite and she probably looks similar to the body of some of the victims. So in that aspect, I, I really felt uncomfortable when he did that.
3: It all began for Norris on February 5th, 1948 in Greeley, Colorado. He was born out of wedlock and his family made it very clear to him that he was very much an unwanted child. His father, was an uncaring and cold man who worked in his family's mental salvage business. His mother, a self-loathing drug addict, resented the fact that she was forced into marrying a man she did not love.
0: In a letter dated January 7, 1995, Norris seems to be trying to elicit sympathy as he describes himself to Richie as the black sheep of the family.
3: Dear Richie, Some of my background may interest you. I was born on February 5th, 1948, a sad day for many people in retrospect. My father was literally the victim of a shotgun wedding, though he and several friends did try to induce a miscarriage. My grandmother considered my mom a gold digger that purposely trapped my father. So, I was a black sheep of the family clan. From a very early age, Norris's mother pounded it into him. He was unloved and unwanted. She also never missed a chance to tell him just how their ugly family union came to be and how and why she was forced into a miserable and loveless marriage to his father. And it was all because of him, because she got knocked up with baby Roy. She exalted, when describing to him, her numerous attempts to self-abort his pregnancy, and that he alone was a byproduct of every mistake and failure she had ever made or endured. He was the cross she was forced to bear, and every second to every minute of every day, her resentment only deepened, furthering her bottomless hatred. When she could no longer deal with the chaos that her unwanted son produced in her mind, child services were called in, and Norris was placed into foster care. After a number of months, Norris's grandparents would pull him out of whatever foster home he was in and bring him back home. Within the next few months, Roy Norris was back in the arms of the Colorado Bureau of Child Welfare. This ping-ponging in and out of foster care continued throughout most of his childhood. Roy Norris was an awkward boy who had trouble making friends, spending most of his time alone or with family members. When Norris was nine years old, he discovered that he enjoyed physically controlling girls. The more he made them scream and cry, the more pleasure he received from it. This discovery came to light after tackling a young female cousin to the ground. Once he had her down, Norris straddled her and would not let her up. The more she begged and cried for him to release her, the more he enjoyed it. Norris couldn't take his eyes off her frilly panties, her matching ankle socks, and the Mary Jane loafers she was wearing. He was immediately aroused. He didn't know what he was experiencing, but... He loved how it made him feel.
0: In this letter, Norris writes about his lifelong fetishes and when he believes they began.
3: As it happens, Richie, I picked up a shoe-and-control fetish from my cousin Shirley when I was in the fifth grade. I think they were called Mary Janes. Though I hadn't gotten actual erections yet, wrestling with her, pinning her down by straddling her so that Her stomach was on the ground and her legs were bent back to her butt. Her top ankle and those shoes were in my crotch area. I didn't have the slightest idea why, but man, did it feel good. Of course, I was also sexually aroused by the control over her. The control in her shoes and her cotton panties. Later in the sixth grade, my fixation shifted to the White sneakers that some of the girls wore back then. But they had to have rounded toes, not those pointy sneakers. And they have to fit the foot in a special way, like perfect, to be arousing. Oh, my bullshitting. If there are white sneakers or rounded toes, that fit snug. I get uncontrollably horny. It was because the cheerleaders in my high school wore them. And I used to love to just stare at them which drove me crazy, making it really hard for me to control my impulses, which are, as you know by now, bad. (laughs) High heels too, but not the super high heels like, you know, in the erotica cartoons. The fetish is so compelling that just the right fit can force me to overlook my usual standards. For example, I really don't like three things in a female. Red hair, huge tits, you know, the big floppy ones that look like giant water balloons that can hang over the side of a bed, and fatties. They will douse my erection in a second. But the right fitting sneaker or high heel, and I can overlook or rationalize some normal turnoffs unless the turn offs are outrageous. There are some types of shoes that I am completely turned off by. I think they're called flats. Yuck, fucking yuck, it makes my blood boil, especially on a hot low blonde bridge. I even ignore a stunning little blonde if she had on a pair of disgusting and dirty flats. Huh. He was 16. Masturbating four and five times a day was getting old, and he wanted the real thing. However, Norris knew he wasn't attractive, he was awkward around people, and throughout his life, girls, for some unknown reason, seemed repulsed by him. But he desperately wanted to know what it was like to actually do it, to get laid, He'd never had a girlfriend, and he had no knowledge of prostitutes or even where to find one. But he knew the next best thing. Norris traveled for two hours to get to his 22-year-old cousin's home. She wasn't particularly pretty, he thought, but she'd do. He slipped in through an unlocked door. She was alone in the house, which he had hoped for. He hid Leering at her while she prepared dinner for her family. He had an incredible urge to grab her, to control her, to make her scream like his little cousin did so many years before. When he stepped into the kitchen to announce himself, she screamed and dropped a plate that shattered on the floor. Her reaction excited Norris. He approached slowly, telling her what he wanted to do to her, how he wanted to tie her up to hear her scream while he fucked her. His terrified cousin ran to her room, locked the door. Norris, unfazed, simply followed her up the stairs and began knocking on the door. Thinking fast, she called her uncle Norris's father and told him what had just happened. He told her not to worry and to put his son on the phone. She hesitantly unlocked the door handing the phone to Norris. His father was apoplectic. He screamed and cursed at his son, leaving him with his final ominous threat. Leave that house immediately and get your ass home, and when you get here, I'm going to beat the living shit out of you for embarrassing our family this way. It was late when Norris returned home. He knew his father would be waiting up in bed to rain hell down on him, so he snuck in stole his car keys, and took off for the Rocky Mountains. Two days later, the police arrested Norris as a vagrant and sent him home. When he got there, both of his parents were waiting, and as opposed to beating him, they sat him down to talk. They soberly laid out their future, a future he was not going to be part of. They coldly explained to him that as soon as he finished high school, They were getting divorced, and he would be on his own. The abandonment he had felt his entire life all coalesced in that one moment. He flew into a rage and told them not to worry. He'd be gone long before that. Norris dropped out of high school and joined the United States Navy.
0: Norris wanted to know what people thought about him. He wanted to understand why girls crossed the street when they saw him approaching. What was he doing wrong, and why was everyone so creeped out about him? Throughout his childhood, Norris was fascinated with electronics, specifically the telephone. By the time he was in high school, he had taught himself everything there was to know about telephones, and he learned how to tap into the phone lines that ran from the street directly into any home he chose. Rob, he actually has the audacity to say that his failure of ninth grade had a huge effect on how he became a rapist and that his ability to tap phone lines made him hate women even more because he really heard the way they talk and they think and so forth. So he lost even more respect for them. But I mean, these are just such childish excuses, really. And there's no depth and no introspection, really. But can you talk about these passages and what do they tell you specifically about Norris because you knew him so well?
4: The the phone line and electronic stuff, he's always had a fascination with that because I used to get letters with schematics of all kinds of electronic stuff full drawings of just elaborate electronics and things that you know this is how it would be if you built this a board or you did this circuit board so he's always had a fascination with that so it's easy to go back but to blame any of those things again he's he's just throwing salt at the wind or trying to throw something at the wall to see what's going to stick to get to whatever response he's going to get because he's not really being honest with really i don't think I think he had regrets, but I don't think he was really truly ever honest with what his sickness was to himself or to others. Uh, That's the one thing.
0: In this letter, Norris discusses listening in on the calls of his classmates, but also how that fly on the wall voyeurism turned into another lifelong obsession and fetish. Here again, Norris refuses to take responsibility for his later crimes. It also exemplifies how easy it was for Norris to blame someone or something else for his heinous actions.
3: Telephone bugging had a major effect on my personality and attitude towards women, especially high school girls. Listening to their intimate conversations affected my mind. I became quite cynical of teenagers and their machinations. Some of them talked about me. And they were not very nice. Honestly, I never really got over that anger. But I continued to listen every chance I got. It became an obsession. And I began to see all kinds of opportunities, let me tell you. Listening is much more fun than reading these bitches' diaries. I really love listening to these bitches' juicy calls. One of my favorite fetishes has always been cheerleaders, so I tapped some of their phones. Man, were they sluts. And they loved talking about fucking. I then figured out how I could not only listen, I could also tape the calls by using a Craig wire recorder. And that's when the fun really began. I wanted to use the tapes to blackmail a few of the bitches, but I was afraid they'd get in my face and slap the shit out of me, or have their boyfriends beat me silly. There was this one really hot cheerleader whose legs and perfect fitting sneakers, oh I used to fantasize about. I tapped her phone and listened one night for two hours. She was telling some guy, Mike, how she liked fucking him, so they made arrangements to meet up. Well. I stole my father's Polaroid camera, went to the parking lot they said they were going, and I waited. Sure enough, they parked and immediately jumped into the back seat. I snuck up so close to the car, I could actually smell the sex. Man. I took a bunch of really good pictures and one perfect shot of her while she was on her back and holding up her ankles. Ah, oh, she didn't realize it because I was in the dark and. She looked directly into the camera.
0: Stephen Giangelo is the author of two books on serial killers, including Real Life Monsters, a psychological examination of the serial murderer. He's a former Illinois state criminal investigator and was assigned to the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. Currently, Steve is an adjunct professor in the Criminology and Criminal Justice Department at the University of Illinois Springfield, where he's taught for the last 22 years. Thank you for joining us, Steve. We're thrilled to get your perspective on Killer's Vault. Can you talk about these passages and what they tell you specifically coming from your point of view about
2: Norris? A couple things on Norris. Uh, I, that just seems to me to be more... Um, bringing up excuses. I mean, he's really reaching for excuses at this point. I mean, he's gone from tearing at women's breasts with a pair of pliers to explaining it because he was, tapping somebody's phone at a point in his life. These things are not connected. I can't, t- I can't get from one place to another on that. The other thing on that one is, the more he talks that way, it seems to me he's trying to humanize himself. He's trying to make the reader and make anybody else who hears him talk, think that this, he's not the monster that he is, that he's actually a little more human than people uh, view him as. And then he's also trying to, to separate himself to, uh, from what people think Bitteker is.
3: Bitteker, born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on September 27, 1940, was born evil. His biological parents gave him up soon after. A young married couple that desperately wanted children, though they could not conceive, adopted him. Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker gave the unnamed infant their surname, and he was forever known Lawrence Sigmund Bideker. George Bittaker worked in the aircraft industry throughout World War II, which had the young family moving frequently. By the time Lawrence Bittaker was 12 years old, he had lived in four states, which is when the family finally settled in Southern California. Bittaker was clearly disturbed since birth, and regardless of the love and nurturing his parents provided him with, he was a highly problematic child. He lied to his parents continuously, He broke windows, damaged property, and was frequently caught shoplifting. This behavior went on throughout his childhood. When Bitteker was 12 years old, he was arrested for shoplifting, and for the next four years, his criminal behavior continued. During this time, Bitteker had been tested in high school, which revealed an IQ of 138. Regardless of his impressive scholastic aptitude, Bittaker dropped out in his senior year and from that moment on until his final arrest in November 1979, Bitteker had spent most of his adult life in prison.
0: Bitteker has, he showed absolutely no remorse. He absolutely uh claimed that Norris was the guilty one, that he wasn't?
1: Well, there's several things going on. First of all, Bittaker is the great minimizer. Um, even in court, after uh, jurors had listened to a horrendous tape of a young girl shrieking as as Bittaker is torturing her with these tools, He basically says, well, all I did was put some cold metal on her, and it was the shock that made her scream. So he's the great minimizer. That's one thing. But both of these guys are impression managers. Both of them have an interest in keeping correspondence because through people on the outside, that's how they get things like money and maybe fetish things. So they need correspondence, they need to manage impressions, they, and, and they quickly learn how to read what people are after and to make sure they're managing that person in the right way. So you never really know in any of the letters from Bitteker or Norris, or in fact any serial killer, what's true and what isn't. They're manipulators. They're going to to look to their advantage at all times. So Bideker's tendency to um, manage impression and to minimize, and also his intelligence, because he was highly intelligent, all adds up into being able to write these long narrative passages. But if you really kind of dig in and see the, the kernels of these passages, they're all about he's, a, he's still being a predator, he's still looking for prey in terms of the kinds of people who write to him and what can he get from them. He does want someone to to tell his story. He reached out to a number of people to do that.
3: When Norris joined the Navy in 1965, he was stationed in San Diego where he remained stateside for three years. And in 1969, he was deployed to Vietnam for a four month tour of duty. While in country, Norris's ship was tasked for combat missions, so, for the most part, his wartime experience was fairly benign. He did, however, begin smoking marijuana, which he continued to do every day of his life until his final Supermax incarceration in 1980. When Norris's ship returned to San Diego in 1969, he could no longer hide or control his evil impulses. It took Norris just one day to act on those impulses. When he noticed the driver of a taxicab was a woman, he immediately hailed it. Norris gave the driver a phony address. It just so happened the address was on a desolate, dead-end street. The moment the cab driver placed the car in park to collect her fare, Norris was all over her. He emerged from the back seat like a ravenous, uncaged animal. He tore off the woman's shirt and brazier, but she fought back with ferocity and was able to get away. Norris was quickly apprehended by the police and arrested for assault. After posting a minimal bail, he was back out on the street. Three months later, Norris attempted to break into a woman's home with the same intentions. Control, pain, and rape. However, before he was able to gain entry into the home, the police were called, and he was arrested for attempted burglary. In no time, Norris was released on bail and was back out on the street. As a predator, Norris was slow and clumsy, and he knew this, if he only had a partner.
0: You had a very personal relationship with Norris. You would visit him in prison and you could see that he was still a predator and he was still a murderer and that he
4: he couldn't quit that. Ever. I have another close friend of mine that visited him quite a bit as well. And uh, he basically Roy told him that he said he just wanted to get a woman and rape her for a month. And my friend looked at him and he said, Roy, you, you just can't do that. It's not right. And Roy didn't understand it. He didn't have the capacity to understand that you just can't snatch a woman, keep her in your house for a month under whatever lock and key, and just use her for a sexual object. He didn't understand that still at seven years old.
3: Behind these arrests, Norris was discharged from the United States Navy, which had classified him as an administrative discharge due to a psychological breakdown. The rage, he felt, was uncontrollable. He needed to be more proactive, he thought. He began stalking college girls on the campus of San Diego University, which is when he saw the one he wanted. He had it all planned out. He'd wait until she walked past him, then grab her from behind, overpower her, and drag her into an alley. But Norris was insane. The woman did pass him, and he did grab her from behind, however, his rage was so total and uncontrollable, that once Norris had the woman in his hands, he had to hurt her. He picked up a rock, he slammed it into her head, knocking her to the ground unconscious. As opposed to dragging the woman into the alley as planned, he instead saw a helpless and lifeless woman beneath him, which excited him. And that is when every bit of the animal that Roy Norris was erupted. She was face down on the pavement. He grabbed her head, wrapping the long coils of her hair around his hands, twisting and twisting until her head was one with his hands. He then slammed his knee in the small of her back for leverage and lifting her head high in the air, he began to slam it over and over into the pavement. Horrified students apprehended Norris and when the police arrived, he was placed under arrest. Except this time he was sentenced to five years at Ascadero Psychiatric Facility where he was diagnosed as a severe schizoid personality. Norris was released five years later and placed on five years probation. Three months later, Norris saw his next victim. He skulked behind a high stand of bushes waiting for her to pass. When she did, he leapt out from behind grabbing hold of her scarf. He furiously twisted the scarf, which cut off her air rendering her nearly unconscious. Once Norris had her behind the bushes, he slapped her face to make sure she was fully engaged and awake. When the woman opened her eyes, she was instantaneously horrified at what she saw and heard. Norris was smiling broadly at her. As his hands cupped tightly over her mouth, he informed her matter-of-factly that he was going to rape her, hard and brutally and there wasn't no a fucking thing she could do about it. A month later, Norris was arrested for that rape and he was sentenced to 15 years at San Luis Obispo Prison, which is where he met Lawrence Bittaker.
0: From your knowledge, what was that Norris Bittaker dynamic? How did that break down in each of the killings?
1: Well, the dynamic really was a dominant and submissive personality. As Norris put it, and we always have to wonder about the, the truth of somebody who's, who's telling the story when they, when they clearly are self-interested in their version of it. Um, but as Norris put it, when he had met Bideker in prison, Bittaker had saved his life a couple of times, and so there was some weird prison code, supposedly, that he now would have to do whatever Bitteker said. Uh, that might be true in prison. I'm not so sure it, it holds true once they're out, but he seemed to think it did.
3: They were on the same prison tier when they met, and they quickly knew this wasn't a chance encounter. This was a special kinship. Bitteker and Norris got on together like a four alarm house fire, more so than anyone they had ever met before. After realizing their fantasies and hatreds were identical, the two men considered one another blood brothers and soulmates for life. It was clear from the very start that Lawrence Bitteker considered himself not only the smarter one, but he was also the alpha in the relationship. Norris was infatuated with his new life partner, and he was only too happy to become the sub to his brilliant and exciting partner's dominant personality. Norris told Bittaker his life story, how he loved to hate women. He told him of the joy he received watching the bitch's terrified face the moment she knew he was about to brutalize and rape her. He recounted all of the missed opportunities, and how much easier life would have been if he had a rape partner. Bitterker confided in his soulmate that he had often thought about raping women, but he had never committed the act. He went on to explain his philosophies regarding women.
0: This is an excerpt from a jailhouse witness's court testimony explaining what Bitterker told him about his experiences with young girls.
3: All girls from the moment they're born to the moment they die, are bitches. And every one of them secretly enjoys getting the shit beat out of them before getting a really good fuck. Especially the little girls. They love to look real pretty and flaunt themselves, but all of them are nothing but a bunch of prick teasers. If you watch young girls, they're all acting radical and trying to get attention. And if you ever get a young girl and she acts wild, (laughs) just grab her and slap her. Watch how she thrills on it. I slap one of my bitches and man, did she nut on it. Norris was thrilled that he'd finally found a brother who saw women the exact way that he did. How they dressed so provocatively, showing off their tits and ass. But when the time came to get down and party, They all of a sudden turned into innocent Catholic girls. Fuck that. Bittaker told Norris that he was down to rape bitches, but they had to be young. Really young. The young ones were the worst kind. They're fucking teasers. And because of that, they deserve the most pain. Bittaker's reptilian eyes glistened as he leaned in. I raped the bitch. I kill the bitch, he whispered. No little whore's gonna put me away. His sinister smile indecipherable underneath his wiry, overgrown mustache. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. Bitteker slowly leaned back against the tiny jail cell wall. His eyes, laser beams, remained fixed on Norris. He was searching for the slightest hesitation. Or better still, Indication that he, too, was down for a partnership in blood and murder. It took Norris a moment to respond. The mental images his soulmate elicited so easily had aroused him just short of ejaculation. Norris was no longer in prison. He saw himself with Bittaker. They were inside a small, dark chamber. A torture Chamber. Partners. Raping. Torturing.
0: Tearing apart every little tease they could get their hands on. In this excerpt, Lawrence Bittaker discusses what he and Roy Norris had begun planning just before their arrests.
3: Me and Roy were going to build an underground room that had torture chambers in it. It's going to be our place where where we could chain up and torture bitches. we keep them naked all the time, just keep them scared and vulnerable. Hang them by their hands with their feet, barely touching the ground. Not to hurt them, but to definitely keep them uncomfortable and submissive.
0: While Roy Norris was housed in an entirely different facility, he told an inmate his version of that same torture chamber that they were planning to build.
3: We had a 1,000 acres of property all lined up in the Mojave Desert at the base of some foothills. Larry got all sorts of literature on construction and building in the area. We're going to dig into the base of the foothills, down far enough for living quarters, holding cells, and a torture chamber secured by a sealed lead door. But not just any torture chamber. This one we designed like a 17th century torture chamber. You know. Low tables, hooks and rings and ceilings and walls so that we can strap the bitches into the perfect position and rape them any way we want. The rings and straps would also help secure them when we fucked them in the ass. But here's the best part. We were going to order a furnace. No, not to keep the bitches warm, but to heat up special custom-made branding irons we're going to use to brand them with. You know, saying that, they were our property. An electronic fence, completely self-contained and stock of food, would surround the place. Ah, oh, what a fucking shame we got busted. Bittaker recognized Norris' glazed eyes, and he knew he'd found a dark disciple. He reached forward, snapping his fingers in Norris's face. Norris... Covered in sweat, suddenly emerged from his blood-drenched fantasy. He mopped the sweat from his pasty face with the sleeve of his stained prison jumpsuit. After a long moment, he smiled at his brothers in arms. Too fucking bad you and me didn't meet a long time ago. Because if we had, I wouldn't have spent one day in prison. We would have killed every bitch I raped. <laughs> Bittaker and Norris hatched an evil plan. They decided when they were both released that they would rape, torture, and murder teenage girls. They would kill one girl for every teen year, beginning with a 13-year-old, then a 14-year-old, and continue on, hitting all the ages from 19 years old. And then, they would start all over again. Bittaker was released from prison on October 15, 1978. He rented a single unit room in a dingy no-tell motel in Burbank, California. Norris was released from prison three months to the day on January 15, 1979. Ironically, he'd somehow reunited with his mother who was living in Redondo Beach, California, a one hour drive to Burbank. True to her word, she had divorced his father long ago. Bittaker found a high-paying job as a machinist, which he learned while incarcerated. Norris found work as an electrician, which he has studied all his life.
0: In this letter, Norris writes about life immediately after he was paroled in February 1979, picking up where he left off five years earlier. The letter, written 15 years after his arrest, is a stunning revelation that his hatred toward women only deepened.
3: When I got paroled, I began working at Lloyd's Electronics, which is where I learned all sorts of new ways to bug, tap, and record. I figured out a way to place a bug and listen to it on my car radio while I sat there smoking a joint. Lloyd's is like a repair shop. Amongst other things, for all types of electronics, radios, stereos, speakers, TVs, garage door, remote controls, you name it. We did it. Whenever a hottie walked in for a repair, guess what I did? I placed a bug in it. Then I got this great idea. I bought a bunch of stuffed animals from a carnival wholesaler. And I put bugs in every one of them. Then when a fine bitch walked in, I give it to her as a thank you for her business. I can't tell you how many of those bitches were perverts with their boyfriends. My cock used to get as hard as Christmas candy. Some of these bitches said they love getting forced to fuck, which is why I believe girls prefer aggressive encounters. Flirtatious, sexy, well-built blondes especially, but I learned all of them were scheming, and conniving cunts, and their behavior was probably just their nature or the female psyche. It was those machinations and schemes I became addicted to. I'm talking about specific women that motivate machinations. Usually, beautiful, long, blonde-haired bitches that are dollar-oriented and too good for me in their eyes.
0: One month after Norris's release from prison in February of 1979, the evil soulmates met up, and they began plotting out their bloodlust. What makes Bittaker and Norris especially heinous, beyond the repeated brutal rapes and sodomy, was the psychological and physical torture these psychopathic sexual sadists inflicted upon their young and innocent victims. But their true horrors and evil nature was revealed after they were arrested.
3: Bittaker and Norris, plotted and planned from February 1979 to June 28, 1979, which is when they committed their first rape, torture, and murder. In those four months leading up to the brutal murder, Bittaker and Norris performed dry runs. After picking up dozens of hitchhikers, women and girls, Bittaker, always a driver, would slowly pull up beside the girls and kindly offer rides. They wanted to see which ruse or techniques worked better than others. They began stocking their tricked-out van with cold soda and beer. They kept copious amounts of marijuana rolled and unrolled for anyone that wanted to get high in the van. The ever-thoughtful Bideker even bought disposable douches just in case they abducted someone that might be menstruating that day. And finally, after months of searching, they found their rape, torture, and murder location, which was high in the San Gabriel Mountains. And it only got better. They found an abandoned fire road that had been fenced off and locked. The road and overall location appeared to them completely deserted and hadn't been visited in decades, which excited and motivated them to get started immediately. Norris made quick work out of the rusted lock, which he cut in two with a pair of bolt cutters. He then replaced the lock with one of his own. As they drove further up the mountain, The dirt path began to narrow. The ragged cliffs of the mountain jutted out and into the blue expanse of the sky which they were dangerously close to. Below them, nothing but a thousand foot drop into a ravine punctuated with more jagged rocks and scrub. They knew they had found their kill site. The perfect place to dumb bitches. The toolbox killers began their bloody and psychotic rampage on June 28, 1979. Bittaker and Norris tortured their victims like medieval executioners, using knives and pliers to slice open and to tear off chunks of skin, nipples, and other parts of their genitalia. They rammed screwdrivers into their victims' vagina and anus. They tortured the girls with ice picks, driving them completely through their breasts, twisting with ferocity until it was torn apart. They used vice-grip pliers to clamp down on their victim's nipples, twisting slowly until they were torn off. They pulverized the girls' breasts with their fists, and according to Norris, they used hammers and mallets to beat their tits back into the chest cavity. They moved onto the victim's vagina, employing the vice with the same slow savagery until they too were torn apart. Another example of their true evil occurred when Bideker tried to remove the teeth from one of his victims. Using the pliers to rinse the poor girl's teeth free, they broke in half, which incensed him. He switched tools and methods. The girl screamed as Bittaker tore back her hair, which is exactly what he wanted, to expose her face and mouth. He smiled as he raised the claw hammer high in the air. And after five vicious blows, the sixteen-year-old girl's teeth were no longer visible. Bittaker switched places with Norris, who was driving. After two hours of rape, sodom, and unimaginable torture, all of which Bitteker tape-recorded, the girl was still alive and fighting for her freedom. Norris's excitement was heightened, now desperately wanting to orally rape the girl, but the damage Bitteker had inflicted was catastrophic. He instead flipped her over to sodomizer. When Norris saw how torn up, bloodied, and ripped apart she was, He had no choice but to vaginally rape her. There was so much more pain to come before deciding to murder the victims. They used sledgehammers to break bones and fracture skulls. Norris hit one of the girls 27 times in her elbow with a five-pound sledgehammer, completely pulverizing her bone. She is heard on the cassette tape screaming, begging and pleading for him to stop. But he did not. Her screams only fueled Norris's excitement. The louder she screamed and begged, the harder and faster he hit her. Norris is hurt on the tape, coaching her on. Come on, bitch, you can do better than that. Scream louder! Louder, I said! He's in her laughing, joking with Bittaker, all the while the slow and deliberate womp, 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 of the hammer continues, and her agonizing screams grow louder Shirley Lynette Ledford was their last victim what is not heard on this tape is any type of remorse from Roy Norris we also do not hear a man who wanted to end these atrocities which Norris would have anyone and everyone believe especially later in life they killed three of their victims by ramming ice picks through their ears and into the brain. One of the girls didn't die from this brutality, so Biddicher rammed a second ice pick into her other ear. Still, she did not die. Biddicher was so infuriated by her desperation to cling to life, he stood up and kicked the ice pick three times as hard as he could rooting it deep into her skull. When he tried to pull the ice pick out, it was so embedded that the handle came off. They strangled the girls with the wire hangers they fashioned into garats. A pair of vice grip pliers was used to twist and tighten the hangers around their necks until they passed out or they died.
0: Rob, did you read this excerpt about how he
4: tortured her with a ice pick the ice the ice pick the the hanger the hanger bothers me a great deal, and the hammer thing the hammer thing is the worst for me on the elbow just to have her scream and that was that was that's horrifying to me. I mean, at what point do you break somebody to that level that they realize they're just an object and uh their their end is near and they have to accept it with this one particular victim. Uh, they allowed her to kneel. She asked to say a prayer because she had resigned to her fate. And before she could even start her prayer, they killed her. And that alone shows the amount of level of sadism that they had because they left her to feel like she was going to have that moment, to have that closure. And they even took that away from her in in an act of violence. And that just again shows the level of depravity that they had.
3: On June twenty-eighth, nineteen seventy-nine, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris slowly cruised the bucolic streets of Redondo Beach, California. They were kicking back and totally relaxed inside their sweet, tricked-out GMC van. Both wore matching black Wayfarer sunglasses, and man, did they feel cool! They were the shit, and everyone knew it. Suddenly, Bittaker's thin, creepy smile disappeared. He stubbed out the remains of a fat blunt, dropping it into an ashtray overflowing with spent marble reds. When they idled at the stop sign, they noticed a pretty blonde 16-year-old girl. Her name was Cindy Schaefer. She had just walked out of a church youth meeting when they had spotted her. Cindy had four blocks to walk to get home safely to her grandmother's house. The white van slowed, as its fat front end angled in closer to the sidewalk. It crawled along, keeping pace with the pretty blonde girl walking next to it. The passenger, a chubby older man, tilted his head out of the window and asked if she needed a lift. Cindy, a trusting girl, didn't think anything of it. She politely declined, thanking the man, telling him that she was almost home, as she continued walking. Two blocks later, Cindy didn't notice the same van idling between two parked cars. She also didn't notice the pudgy man with the stringy mustache pretending to fix the sliding door of the van. By the time she had noticed, it was too late. A thick and sweaty arm wrapped around her neck and she was suddenly swooped off her feet. Adrenaline rocketed through her body as she flew into survival mode. Cindy began fighting. Kicking wildly, clawing at the arm that was now covering her nose and mouth. She felt herself lifted off the ground, and as she surged forward, she noticed the edge of the white metal door rushing to her. Closer, closer, until BANG! Everything went black. Six days later, on July 8th, 1979, 18-year-old Andrea Hall was hitchhiking a popular thing to do in a cozy seaside town in Manhattan Beach, California. On September 3rd, 1979, 13-year-old Leah Lamp and her best friend, 15-year-old Jackie Gilliam, were both hitchhiking to the beach. These two innocent victims were held in the San Gabriel Mountains for two days. In a desperate attempt to gain notoriety, but to also terrorize the people of Los Angeles, Norris and Bittaker made a fatal mistake that would lead to their arrest. On October 31, 1979, Shirley Lynette Ledford was hitchhiking in the San Fernando Valley. After Bittaker and Norris raped and brutalized her for hours, Norris, the alleged innocent and remorseful victim, wrapped a wire hanger around her neck. He then used the pliers to twist the two ends of the hanger together slowly and methodically, tightening it until she asphyxiated to death. But that wasn't enough for Norris. His bloodlust wasn't yet satisfied. Using Bitteker's hunting knife, he began slicing and tearing what was left of her body. Roy Norris mutilated her face, neck, breasts, stomach, back, and buttocks.
0: This next letter was written within the first couple of months of the Norris and Dickstein friendship. In this letter, Norris uses all of his manipulation skills in an effort to further cultivate the friendship for personal gain. Throughout Norris's near 20-year relationship with Richie Dickstein, he never once missed an opportunity to discuss his artwork. Dr. Ramsland states that Norris was a classic narcissist, using his artwork like a tool or a device to fulfill his emotional needs. Serial killers are masters at manipulation. When Norris is self-effacing, he's actually searching for compliments. This behavior is also apparent when Norris claims not to understand why people collect prison artwork or memorabilia from the likes of him. Yet, in this very same letter, Norris uses his artwork to curry favors and cut deals with Richie. In this letter, Norris attempts to solidify his friendship with Richie, a potential jailhouse benefactor. He goes out of his way to reveal his suffering, the daily remorse and pain he feels behind the murders he committed. Norris does, however, minimize his participation in the crimes, once again placing blame on his soulmate, Lawrence Bittaker.
3: Hey man, it still amazes me that some people collect prison art and memorabilia. If our positions were reversed, I wouldn't spend my hard-earned money on the likes of myself collecting memorabilia from murders like myself and Lawrence Bideker or the Hillside Strangler, Bianchi or Buono. just doesn't seem right. Larry and I killed five innocent victims who would have easily been productive members of society. We destroyed untold lives of the relatives and friends, not to mention our own relatives and friends who were embarrassed and humiliated by our crimes. There's only one thing I feel good about that I came to my senses finally and ended our crimes forever. As far as my artwork, I've seen some impressive artists in prison, and it's gonna take a while for me to consider my artwork impressive. My ultimate goal is to do portraits and then do paintings for all the people asking for them, but I'd camouflage the faces of the five victims in clouds, rocks, water, trees, or. You know, whatever it's called for in the drawing. Sort of a memoriam of a kind. I think it's important they are remembered as victims they were. You know, if I had access to money, I'd replace the gravestones with monuments. With a few words about them being victims. Halloween will be the anniversary of the death of our last victim. Not a single day has passed since each of their deaths that I haven't thought about them and voice a silent prayer for them. I want there to be life after death, as in the Bible. Not for myself, but for the victims who were cheated out of the life on earth. It comforts me a bit that they would be in heaven now. It may sound irrational that I claim to have thought about the victims everyday censored deaths, but it's true. I would not have had any murders if I could have avoided them. I even managed to save a few girls from becoming victims and they are the few reasons that I have some small amount of self-respect. These anniversaries fueled my guilt and I tend to go on and on in my writings, a habit of sort this time of year.
0: Then suddenly the flow of Norris's deep angst and sorrow is quickly interrupted by something really, really exciting.
3: Oh wow, a minute and 45 seconds to go in the first quarter New England leads by a point. 7 6 over Buffalo. Cool. Hey, man, it may prove to be an exciting game, though I, though I did spend much of the afternoon drawing some pumpkins on a bunch of postcards I'm sending out to the many people who want to hear from me. I write to everyone who writes to me, even to those who occasionally send me hate mail. I do so because I consider it a responsibility that I owe to society for my continued existence. I'm one of the few serial killers that isn't on death row who can answer questions asked of me. I'm not in a position where admitting to something will affect me in a negative way, so I answer every question as candidly as possible. Hopefully, something in my writings will prevent someone else from making foolish mistakes. By the way, I'm not insinuating that you may benefit personally. I was 31 years old when Bitteker and I committed the five murders that put him on death row and me in prison for the rest of my life. It doesn't seem like 16 long years have passed since then, but they have lonely years too.
0: What's astounding in these passages is that Roy Norris, one of the most brutal and sadistic serial killers of the 20th century, reasons that his evil and callous murders were synonymous with making foolish mistakes. Norris claims that he did feel badly for his actions. Did Norris actually care about his victims or was he just trying to get the reader to empathize with him? I mean, what was it that he wanted to hear by having this sort of self-reflection, this self-awareness about regret and not wanting to go to heaven because he didn't want to see his victims there and so forth?
2: I think there's a certain amount of introspection, like we spoke about before, where some of these guys spend enough time in prison, they have nothing else to do but think about themselves and their story. Um, His deep regret... Um, I'm not buying it all the way to be perfectly honest with you. This is an individual by his own volition committed unspeakable torture of individuals using tools found in a toolbox and, and, and recording these things so he could enjoy it later on. He fully participated in these crimes with Bittaker, and the idea that Bittaker or Norris were more or less responsible for these kills is just not acceptable for me. The both of them participated fully and they're both the same to me.
0: Again, Norris's self-importance and grandiosity is obvious as he points out the many people that write to him, the only serial killer not on death row, and the sage advice he provides in his writings. Norris easily negotiates with the facts regarding his participation in the five murders, while also claiming to have saved the lives of potential victims, all in an effort to fit the false narrative he's selling to Ritchie. He wasn't responsible And deep down, he's a really good dude. Norris did not finally come to his senses to end the murders. In fact, the two psychopaths were just getting started, which we'll explain later. Norris was arrested for a rape he had committed three weeks prior to their final murder. Following Norris's arrest, the police conducted a search of his home, quickly uncovering a number of disturbing Polaroid photos. These photos displayed hardcore sex scenes between Norris and two what appeared to be extremely young girls. Upon closer inspection, the detectives were stunned after realizing that the girls in the photos were linked to a much larger investigation involving a potential serial killer. Not wanting to take a solo hit for all five murders, Norris quickly gave up his soulmate, Lawrence Bittaker. Norris's heroism saving some girls from horrific torture, rape, and murder is more fabrication to fit his twisted narrative. Bitteker and Norris had done many dry runs in the van, picking up dozens of hitchhikers as they were plotting out their abductions and the subsequent murders. In each instance, they let the girls out of the van unharmed. And finally Norris gets to it. After milking Dickstein's every emotion, he reveals his ulterior objective.
3: Hey, man, I was just thinking, and by the way, we only do this if you're cool with it. But do you know that we can submit the letters that we write to each other for publication in the Pelican Bay Prison Express? It's a prison newspaper sponsored by the Prison Rights Union in San Francisco, California. I need you to photocopy my letters to you and then send them back to me for the publication. You can send me a dozen of each unfolded, this letter included, in a 9 by 12 manila envelope. In return, I'll send you a special thank you drawing. Oh, and one last thing. Due to a new mailroom policy, I'm in a bit of a spot. If you can send me $5, you know, for this year's Christmas cards any time after November 28th. And please don't forget to include the photocopies. Then I'll send you one of my sleeping cougar drawings.
0: This letter was written before the friendship between the two men had evolved into something more than Dickstein being a simple mark for Norris to exploit money and favors. Though what does remain consistent in all of Norris's letters is his resistance to come clean. Not about the murders, but what he and Bittaker put those five young girls through before they executed them. The absolute brutality dispensed as they tortured and raped them for hours. Two of those girls for 48 hours. From your recollection, Rob, tell me about the ice pick in the ears and the acid in the eyes and in the ears and what those incidents were about with Norris and Bittaker.
4: So with the murders, you know, people don't sometimes uh, understand the true depravity or depravity of the murders themselves and what was going on. It's something I don't normally uh, talk about because, again, in a way, if I avoided this subject, it made it easier for me to write them because I wasn't really going into that. But that being said, Roy did some really, really horrible things. Uh, The reason they were called the toolbox murderers because of the items that they used to implement the torture that they did, Uh, the sticking the uh, ice pick in the one victim's ear and and kicking three times, driving the uh, ice pick deeper and deeper, trying to commit the murder. And finish her off, and then, and then not succeeding, and then using a, you know, uh, a coat hanger on one, and using the pliers or channel locks to tighten it down and slowly strangle people. Um, it's, it was, it was a really vicious. Uh, they were very, very vicious killers, and it's not, you know, when you try to think about that in perspective to the, the letters that I've gotten, the relationship that I had. You know, it's, it's, it's almost hard to discuss it when I look at it in that pragmatic of a light, if that would be the correct word, uh, because it really diminishes my thoughts and feelings somewhat for him because I have to put it in a real perspective.
3: They had grown tired of having to clean up Murder Mac after every kill. It was impossible to get the bloodstains out of the carpet and changing the fucking carpet every two weeks was beginning to break the bank. It had also become like a game of clue, searching the van for body parts after each kill. In the throes of sexual frenzy, neither man was really keeping track of what flew where. And then Norris floated an idea to his partner. It was a way to keep the van spotless, but it would also liven up the abductions, which they both agreed was getting tired and old. When Bitteker heard Norris's idea, he was ecstatic. No more kills. Even better, after terrorizing the bitches and getting his nut off, he could dump them on the side of the road and not have to worry about them identifying him. In fact, it would be impossible for them to even be questioned. His mind was racing and just thinking about the screams he was gonna record was getting him hard. They were both going to steal a gallon of muriatic, sulfuric, and phosphoric acid from their jobs. Once they acquired all three, they'd use a glass dropper to extract the acid and then slowly drip the liquid into the next victim's eyes and ears. Which acid worked the best? Trial and error. Once they pulled it off, they both knew their crimes would be infamous. They could walk with their heads held high, knowing that they would be considered the most heinous, most evil serial killers and rapists the world has ever known. They were going to be bigger than Ted Bundy and the Hillside Stranglers, and no one would know it was them. The mere thought of all that fame sped up the clock to their insanity. They decided it was time for another kill, regardless of the fact they hadn't yet acquired the acid. It was time for the toolbox killers to reveal their work to the world. They decided it'd be fun to dump her body on a lawn. They wanted to get a jump on the fame they'd receive once they started playing with acid. It was time to scare the shit out of the world and to announce the presence of the two most evil and sadistic serial killers ever.
0: The last murder of the toolbox killers, they dumped the body on a front lawn in broad daylight. What do you think they were trying to achieve by doing that?
1: Several things were going on here. First of all, Bittaker had already decided he was going to be more famous than Manson. He saw what they were doing as his path to fame. And at the same time, the Hillside Stranglers uh, were going on where they were dumping bodies uh, out in the open but, but I do think that there's something we call narcissistic immunity, a sense that they hadn't been caught so far, and they've done some pretty horrendous things. They be, they're beginning to feel a bit invincible, like we can be more and more bold. They're probably addicted to reading some of this in the papers of missing girls and whatnot, and they want to see what will happen with this flagrant display of a victim just dumped on someone's lawn like the hillside stranglers had done. So I do think this is part of their urge to, to get more fame and glory and more coverage, but at the same time, I think that they think that they're untouchable, that nothing's gonna to happen to them because they have built up this sense of immunity because they're so narcissistic, and Bittaker thinks he's smarter than everybody else. So he believes that's going to see him through, and they won't get caught for this either.
3: The next morning, a jogger was horrified after discovering the mangled body of Shirley Lynette Ledford. Though the newspapers and television stations couldn't get enough of the gruesome discovery, it just wasn't enough for Norris. He craved the attention. He wanted someone to know it was Roy Norris, the kid from Geely, Colorado, who created all this chaos, terror, and panic. He met an old prison buddy, Jimmy Dalton, for drinks at a dive bar in Compton. The recently paroled convict's mouth hung open when Norris began talking. He couldn't stop himself from reliving the past four months. Norris gave all the gory detail to the season ex-con who had suddenly realized that a light bulb had just blinked on above his head. After spending a few years in the can with Norris, Dalton had heard all of his fantasies and then some, but this time Dalton knew that his creepy rapist friend wasn't bullshitting because he had read the newspapers like everyone else and Norris knew too much about the crime. Dalton knew... He was about to be picked up on an old case. He also knew the information he had was gold. The next day he called his lawyer, who then informed the police. However, that day Norris was picked up by the police for the rape he had committed three weeks in the past. Once he was confronted with the Polaroid photos, he caved. He began recounting his and Bittaker's senseless and bloody crimes, as well as informing the police of the whereabouts of Bittaker's trophies. The cassette tapes and photos, damning evidence that Biddicker wasn't clawing out from. Roy Norris flipped on Lawrence Bittaker to save himself from the sting of the lethal injection. During Norris' testimony, the prosecutors played those cassette tapes and revealed the dozens and dozens of photographs he had directed them to. When the recorder clicked on in the spacious echo inducing courtroom, something terrible and unexpected happened. All the victims spoke from the grave. Their loud, agonizing screams reverberated off the walls, ceilings, and floorboards. The ferocity of their screams was so terrifying and immediate that the horror-stricken spectators ran from the courtroom. Bittaker took the stand in his own defense When the tape recorder was clicked on, and he was confronted with the horrible screams, Lawrence Bitteker simply smiled. The agitated prosecutor asked him what was so funny, and Bitteker had his answer ready for the horrified spectators. You don't think I was hurting these girls, do you? No, man, they weren't in pain. They were just play acting. Besides, they were hookers. And when you pay a hooker, they generally do what you ask. I asked them to do a bit of screaming, which they did. The jury didn't buy Bittker's lies. He was sentenced to death on February seventeenth, nineteen eighty-one. Because of his cooperation, which sealed Bittker's fate, the sadist rapist and killer Roy Norris escaped the death penalty and received. 45 years to life in prison. Bitteker died in prison of natural causes on December thirteenth, two 2019. Norris died in prison of natural causes on February twenty-fourth, two 2020.
0: In this letter, Bitteker writes with contempt regarding his imminent death sentence. And with inconceivable irony, he writes of his disdain for the death penalty.
3: I've had two dates, but they were just formalities. I have only ever thought about it a couple of times, and unless something goes wrong, I'll do it myself before I let these people have the satisfaction. 15 painless seconds and I can forget about it. Actually, I'm bothered almost as much by the idea that someone could come to work knowing they were gonna kill a healthy human being scary
0: for additional content and to discuss these podcasts please go to killersvault.com
1: the killer's
3: vault podcast is based on the serial killer collection owned by dr david adamovich and lynn wheat and collected by Richie and barbara dickstein the killer's vault podcast is also based on the serial killer collection Owned and collected by Rob Webb.